So welcome all. My name is Kodo. It's Tuesday, it's Young Urban Zen. Uh, if you're willing, just as we start, even for a moment to flash on your video, just so we can get a brief sense of each other. And uh, if that doesn't feel right, totally fine. And then we can move back into our Zoom tiles. Yeah, nice to see you. Hello, hello. Great. Thanks so much. So I'm, in, I'm inspired to take a cue from one of my teachers from Tassajara, who at the beginning of every one of his talks, would, uh, he would always say the same thing. <laughs> he told me later it was just to get his mouth going. And he would always uh, take a moment to acknowledge and thank his teachers. And I, I'd like to do that as we start tonight uh, to acknowledge and thank uh, my teacher, Shin Chi Linda Gallion, who's in the midst of silent retreat. And Kojun Gil Fransdal, who's also in the midst of uh, silent retreat, though he's teaching. Um, yeah, deep appreciation for these beings. Um, they're both in terms of in terms of uh, Dharma land, Dharma lines, Dharma life. They're sort of spiritual grandchildren of Suzuki Roshi. This um, this teacher who came over from Japan to California and by now has awakened something in the hearts of several generations of Buddhist practitioners. I don't know how many of us have read Zen Mind Beginner's Mind, but it's pretty common. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty common that I, I when I ask someone, how did you, how did you uh, end up here? <laughs> how did you end up at City Center in San Francisco? How did you end up in Aaron Zen? How did you end up in uh, Spirit Rock? Whatever, whatever Dharma place they are. Often they'll say, oh, someone gave me a copy of Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. So I wanted to open this with a, kind of maybe a surprising and a little bit of a funny story about Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. Um, this is from David Chadwick, who wrote the book Crooked Cucumber, uh, Suzuki Roshi's bio. And uh, uh, yeah, David Chadwick puts it like this. When Shunryu Suzuki, Suzuki Roshi, first saw a published copy of Zen Mind Beginner's Mind. He looked it over for a minute and he commented, good book. I didn't write it, but it looks like a good book. <laughs> oh. So apparently he and some of the students were in the foyer of the building where I'm, I'm speaking from now, City Center. And uh, the, the volumes had just arrived. The, the book was put together by his students is the short, the short story. And he explained that uh, he reads the book to see how his students understand. But what's salient to me and what's sort of to the point for us tonight is that there was this being who, who directed, whose influence touched the hearts of so many people and then based on that inspiration and, and whatever the, was going on in the heart of all those people, 
they directed themselves to the practice. It's like on account, on account of that encounter or that relationship, they were reoriented, redirected. So this topic of orientation comes up because um, as many of you know, we've been talking about the Four Noble Truths. We're in the midst of this series on the foundations of Dharma for Young Urban Zen. And uh, we have gone through the first, second, and third, and it's time for the fourth. First Noble Truth, uh, the, uh, the dukkha of life, the suffering, stress of life, the unsatisfactoriness or dis-ease of life. The second Noble Truth of its arising and the conditions associated with that, the third noble truth of its cessation, and this fourth noble truth, which we'll cover tonight, just this noble eightfold path. So we're edging up really closely to that other classic list. Also, if you ask folks, oh, what are the foundational teachings of Buddhism? Oh, four noble truths, eightfold path. So we're getting there, we're getting there. But this question of orientation comes up, orienting, directing. Um, in part because each of the factors of the Noble Eightfold Path is described as right, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood. And um, I get curious about Pali words, so I look, at the, I look them up, and the word is samma, S-A-M-M-A, samma. And I was wondering, how is this, like, what can we glean about the Noble Eightfold Path from this word samma? Um, in one place, it's called rightly directed. Uh, sometimes right, sometimes complete, sometimes full, sometimes rightly directed. So some of the, some of the phrases where samma shows up in the text, uh, one is so folded in to the religious life of Buddhism, to the practices of Buddhism, that it's part of what's called an, uh, it's a formal homage phrase, uh, which ends, uh, uh, I won't translate the whole thing, but the Pali is namuatasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. It's like homage to the worthy one, the blessed one. Then this is a, a fully self-enlightened one. And it's samma is fully in this case. And it's a characteristic of the Buddha. It's a quality of his awakening, Samma. Shows up a lot in, in uh, Mahayana teachings in this phrase, Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi, un, uh, uh, unsurpassable, complete, and perfect enlightenment. It's pretty lofty, right? Um, but what I'm hearing when I look at these constructions is like a path already completed. It's like, how does, that, how does that help me to understand how to practice with the Noble Eightfold Path? Um, yeah, if I'm, if, I'm always, if I'm always like measuring up against the Buddha and his utter perfection, like what, is that, what does that show me? That really, like is that helpful or is it not? Um, to be a little light about this, there's a, there's a comedian who's sometimes quoted who says, if you don't know where you're going, you might end up somewhere else. Uh, so in that way, in that way, it's good, to, it's good to have a sense of the ending of the path. 
of the these uh, indicators of sort of a complete and full perfected Buddha. But I'm very interested in how we as non-Buddhas, in some sense of the word, who are who are cultivating this path, bodhisattvas, can relate to sama. What, what does it tell us? Because as we as we know from having looked over the 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 sutta in which the Buddha's first sermon happens and he lays out the four noble truths, the task of the fourth noble truth, the eightfold path, is that it is to be cultivated. It's to be developed. And the Buddha, uh, I don't remember in my reading of the suttas ever coming across the Buddha saying, hey, all of you, uh, be perfect and do it right now. There's this, there's this sense of developing capacities and qualities. So, lucky for us, someone actually asked, asked the Buddha, what, uh, what, about this, what about this word, samma? And he used, as he often did, an image to explain. And what I think it explains is the notion of samma as rightly directed. We'll get into this a bit. So the image he uses is of a, uh, a grain of rice or a teensy spike or a pointy seed or something like that. You have it in your hands. And if it's pointed the wrong way, it's pointed parallel, it won't penetrate the skin. And why? Because it's, it's wrongly directed. It won't penetrate. But if it's pointed the right way, it would penetrate. So the analogy is extended. I don't know how much you want to draw blood, but the analogy is extended to ignorance. If you want the factors of the path to penetrate ignorance and tear open the veils of freedom, then the factors must be rightly directed. So a lot of language. Rightly directed eightfold path, freedom. Penetrates to freedom. Wrongly directed eightfold path. Doesn't penetrate to freedom. Very simple distinction. And the, um, it was kind of a, a, surprising, a surprising thing for me to see that there are, there are texts where um, the Buddha actually lays out the Eightfold Path with Sama's counterparts, so Sama being right, and Micha, like wrongly directed. And it was really weird for me to pick up the fact that there's such a thing as like wrongly directed mindfulness. Like, how can that be possible? I don't have an answer for that, but it really sparked my curiosity. Um, I think it's easier to understand something like wrongly directed view that leads you into suffering or wrongly directed speech that leads you into suffering. What's wrongly directed mindfulness? I'll get back to you on it, I guess, when we talk about that factor. But the point being, there's an orientation. And I think that's one of the pieces of Sangma. I think another clue to this idea of sama, rightly directed, is in this analogy of um, the Buddha as having rediscovered the Eightfold Path, as though in his, in his spiritual searches, in his, in his quest for the ending of suffering, um, that not only did he come to its end, but he, he found the way. I like that it's rediscovered. Like it was there, the Buddha's like, oh yes, 
I found it, it's mine. It's like, no, this was something that was here before and the Buddha rediscovered it, this ancient pathway. Something I like about the pathway analogy is that um, in order for, I don't know if any of you have ever done trail, trail work or like cared for your yard, but a trail doesn't stay a trail if you don't care for it. So the path requires continual care is one of the implications I wanna draw. Another bit that's interesting is we sometimes talk about the Eightfold Path as a, um, in one place it's called a divine vehicle. It's pretty nice. Apparently, uh, apparently this came about by um, Ananda seeing this resplendent white carriage uh, just totally decked out in decorations. It was like, wow, that is impressive. And he went back to talk to the Buddha and uh, said, wow, I saw this really impressive divine vehicle. Is there such a divine vehicle in the Dharma? Why, yes, the Eightfold Path. The twist at the end of that story, though, is that he tells Ananda, the Buddha tells Ananda, that the, this divine vehicle, it arises from within. The qualities of the Eightfold Path arise from within through right direction. And then kind of a third clue I think about Samma is that it is rightly directed toward a particular purpose. And that is, that is liberation, that is awakening. Seeing things as they are, freedom, release, and the, the, remedy, the remedy works to satisfy that end. And in that way, it is rightly directed. And that can be one of the orienting points. So this factor comes up over and over again. We'll see that. We will get to spend a fair amount of time with the factors of the Eightfold Path, I think. Um, Right now, I want to talk about them a little bit in brief for the light they might shine on this, um, this concept of samma, rightly directed, this understanding of rightly directed, so that it can, um, yeah, I wonder, I wonder what, it, what little clues it'll, it awakens in your mind or what, uh, what it might evoke in your heart as we sort of move through the factors of the Eightfold Path and talk about samma from these different vantage points. One thing I'd also like to do to help build our memory about, about the Eightfold Path and its factors is to, um, to link each one to a part of the body, actually. So we'll, we'll go through bit by bit and we'll take right view. You can think of it as the eyes. Right intention, the head, the brain. Right speech, mouth. Right action and right livelihood I'm thinking about is the right and the left hand, because they go together in such a balanced way. Right effort, I'll explain why later, the belly, the gut. Right mindfulness, the spine. I learned today that there are 31 pairs of nerves that come out of the spine. That's amazing. Imagine all the awareness. So mindfulness, the spine, and then concentration, right concentration, the heart. So the eight, eight factors of the Eightfold Path. 
So what can they tell us about themselves and what can they tell us about Sama being rightly directed? With right view is the eyes of the path. The idea, one of the ideas here is that right view is that which sees stress and joy and begins to make that basic discernment. It's the, it's the view, it's the eyes that's sensitive to dukkha. It's sensitive to the Four Noble Truths that we've been studying so far and attentive to the causes that bring those things into, be, into being. The eyes. If you're walking on the path, I don't know how far we'll get. If we're, if we're out in the woods, we close our eyes and we just keep walking. The uh, right view, uh, along with our discernment and our intelligence, our heart and our application, keeps us from stumbling over into, into the thicket. The second factor, right intention, right thought. I'm pointing to the head. I'm thinking the brain. Um, I think what this shows us about being rightly directed, right intention, right thought, is that right being rightly directed isn't just about externals. That can sometimes sometimes uh, come through when we're talking about a path or navigating a path. But even as deep as our intention, the intention underneath our action comes into play in the factors of the Eightfold Path and their rightness. And of course, the, the, the intentions, the thoughts associated with renunciation, with goodwill, and with compassion and non-cruelty are considered rightly directed. The mouth. I think, I think the only thing I wanna to say to illustrate right speech is actually to point to its opposite. Can any of you think of a time where you let it slip? And then how much effort and time did it take to clean that up? Is that, is that conducive to freedom? I don't know. I don't know. You decide. So right action, right livelihood, right and left hand. I think these go together because the, the orienting principle in both cases and fundamental to rightly directing, fundamental to right effort, I'm sorry, fundamental to right action, fundamental to right livelihood is the principle of non-harming. We talk about this a lot. We talk about this a lot. And I think in part because um, I think a fair number of teachers would say, if you were going to reduce the Buddhist path to one phrase, that's it, non-harming, and all that that implies. So that's fleshed out in our, in our precepts, the Bodhisattva precepts that we follow, all guided by this principle of non-harming. A disciple of the Buddha doesn't kill. A disciple of the Buddha doesn't steal. The rakasu that I wear um, is given when we take these vows, when we take these precepts, we put our heart on, we take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And then this is our, this is our sign to the world 
that I, to the best of my ability, have dedicated myself to not harming you. Right action. And this holds me accountable. I'm not always, it uh, doesn't always uh, go perfectly. That's going to be something we'll talk about later. So non-harming, right action. And non-harming is the principle that I apply to right livelihood. Um, to abandon a harmful livelihood to the best we're able, given our circumstances, and to sustain our livelihood with contentment. Right effort, moving down to the belly, the gut. I think what, the, what right effort shows us is the importance of, of diligence and the courage that that takes. I associate the belly with power and um, my courage. I know courage is sometimes talked about as the heart, but I, I feel courage and I feel fear right down here. And the diligence, the patience, the determinedness it takes to be heedful with our actions in order that they be non-harming. Mindfulness, right? Mindfulness, the seventh of eight factors. The spine. I feel like if we paused and put ourselves upright, it wouldn't need much more explanation. But I will say, attention Reb Anderson's book, Being Upright, I think that says a lot of it. What I like so much about the spine as a reminder of what it is to be rightly directed is it points to our balance. It also points to the protection that we give to our nerves, our lifeblood, our brain. And then this third thing, Dogen has this phrase that mindfulness of the body is the body's mindfulness. Mindfulness of the body is the body's mindfulness. And when I think about the spine and all the nerves moving out into the spine, I'm not making all that awareness happen. It's like if I tune into my little toe, my little toe is having this experience all, all without my intentions, at least so far as I'm conscious. I'm sitting cross-legged and my right thigh is sitting right thigh zazen. I have my hands in the mudra and my my, uh, my hands are doing their own hands, Zazen. That's a Suzuki Roshi teaching with a twist. Mindfulness of the body is the body's mindfulness. And then concentration. I associate with the heart. And I wanted to include this because the path of transformation that the Buddha is outlining here, we can talk about it in terms of suffering and the end of suffering. We can also talk about it in terms of the heart and the opening of the heart, the beauty of the heart when it's unencumbered, when it's in accord, when it's freed of clinging, freed of non-harming. You know, what does that suggest about what it means to be rightly directed? It's like to include this, this that's right at the core of us.
I love that some of the Thai forest masters of the last generation, at least, would discuss their concentration in terms of their, um, their awareness converging upon their heart. Uh, this other word, chitta. I appreciate that. So I feel like these eight factors of the Eightfold Path, taken in some, sort of picking up the suggestions about what they show us, about what it means to be rightly directed, to be rightly directing the mind, rightly directing the heart. In summary, I put them this way, that rightly directed means attentive to the aim, the ending of dukkha, sensitive externally and internally, heedful, non-harming and balanced, courageous, upright, and heartful. I wonder if that's a leap, but it sounds a little like Suzuki to me. I wonder. That's my imagining of him, anyway. Attentive, sensitive, heedful, not harming, balanced, courageous, upright, heartful. I think one of the implications of practicing with the Eightfold Path, with these factors of mind and heart rightly directed, in a sense, is that we become our own best friend. In the best sense of that saying in the sense of like best friend or uh, most harmful enemy. And I think something we can, we can take a cue from is whenever we set ourselves up in Zazen and we check the points of our body, you're bringing the entire eightfold path with you. You know, sometimes doesn't it feel like just zazen, just like, that's enough. Isn't that enough? Sometimes, said by the guy who studies a lot. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, setting ourselves up in the zazen posture, bringing the view of the eyes, the head, the mouth, the hands, the gut, the spine, the heart, it's all there. And these, these eight practices, these eight factors rightly directed can be a support for us, just the way our zazen posture is. A really simple analogy. I think the Buddha is sometimes master of simple analogies. He says, just as a, a pot, a pot, a pot, a pot without a stand is easily knocked over, while one with a stand is difficult to knock over. So the mind without a stand is easily knocked over, while the mind with a stand is difficult to knock over. And what is the stand of the mind? It's the Noble Eightfold Path, right view, intention, speech, action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. That's eight rights. 
So something I want to underscore again in our last couple of minutes. The Pali word for path is patipada. It's a path of practices. It's not a path of being completely perfect all the time. That is part of where even right intention comes in. The goodwill, the compassion, the the kindness for yourself and others. And these eight forms of rightly directing the Noble Eightfold Path. They can be reference points while you you walk the path. They can be a pathway to freedom that's good and beneficial in the beginning, in the middle, and in the end. I very much do like to keep these eight factors of the Eightfold Path um, in my mind, draw them up consciously, especially when scenarios get complicated. It's like, okay, I don't know what to do with this. I don't know which way forward. How's this going to work? I will actually do the exercise of going, okay, what view is active? Am I, am I operating from a view that's informed by greed, hatred, and delusion? Or am I informed by a view that is uh, generous, kind, and compassionate? And then I'll move down the factors. So what I'm saying is... Um, I sort of, in one way, I kind of keep the Noble Eightfold Path as a checklist (laughs) and work it over and over and over again um, to help me check in with myself about, am I directed? Am I directed toward the the kind of life I want to be living right now? Or the kind of, am I showing up in this scenario in the way I want to show up? In closing, I I had the thought as we were finishing the sitting. When uh, Linda and Gil came to my mind, it's a very auspicious day. It's a full moon day in in the the Buddhist sphere. That's a, that's a, uh, it's an auspicious time, especially for them to be in silent retreat. And the thought arose when my, my heart filled up with this gratitude for them and all that they've sort of done for me. And my heart filled up and I started thinking about what does it take to pass on love to people we care about? What is that, what does that require of us? How do you, how does that happen? I mean, some of you have children and like understand maybe something for yourselves about how do you pass on an open and beautiful heart? And maybe that's the essence of rightly directed. Maybe so. I'll be turning it in that way. I'll be thinking about it in that way. What's it take to pass on love? Let's just sit for a moment and say something more. Thank you for your attention.